what I realized was that there was so much internalized baggage that I, from women in 17 countries. And the baggage came about in how we recognize and view our own time. I know you are doing the best that you can right now. Your relationships matter to you. You are important. And yet over time, we get stuck. We get lost or we stop showing up as our true self. We get hung up on the stories we tell ourselves, the comparisons, or feeling like we are not good enough. I'm Not Your Shrink is a podcast aimed at helping you feel connected to yourself, to others, and to live a life that is in line with what matters most to you. I'm Dr. Tracy Dalglish, clinical psychologist and couples therapist. I bring you clinical knowledge and evidence-based research, experiences of sitting in the therapist chair, and being a wife and mother to talk about everyday issues we all face to help you change the dialogue in your life. Let's dive in. I am so glad that you chose to click play on today's episode because I have truly been looking forward to sitting down with today's guest. Today, I get to sit down with Eve Rodsky, and she is working to change society one partnership at a time by coming up with a new 21st century solution to an age-old problem, women shouldering the brunt of child-rearing and domestic life responsibilities regardless of whether they work outside of the home. In her New York Times bestselling book, Fair Play, she uses her Harvard Law School training and years of organizational management experience to create a life management system to help couples both rebalance all of the work it takes to run a home and reimagine their relationship, time, and purpose. Let me tell you, this book is powerful and there are some key pieces in there that I continue to use and take away in my own life as well as my work with couples. Eve was born and raised by a single mom in New York City and now lives in Los Angeles with her husband and three children. Let's jump into the episode. Eve, I'm so honored to be sitting with you here today. Thank you so much for taking this time and joining me on the podcast. I'm so happy to be here. I, I was saying to you earlier before we got on air that I, um, you know, it's, you're, you're one of those people where we probably never would have met. And so this is where social media is a really good thing. And so I feel really um, fortunate because I follow your content. I think it's really important for mothers, um, for women in general, and for any family structure. So Thank, thank you, you for your work too. Uh, thank you. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's such a beautiful piece uh, being on social media and connecting with more people and how, you know, it's such a privilege to step outside of my office and be able to offer so much more than what I would be able to do just one-on-one. So let's start at the beginning, not the very beginning, but let's just do three things that make you uniquely you so that we can get to know you. Oh, you know, this is my, literally my favorite question of all. And for me, um, the reason why it's my favorite question is because so many women, when I asked them that question, um, had a really hard time answering it. And so did I, when I was um, at the least vibrant stage of my life after my second son was born. But now what I say makes me uniquely you is I'm a lifelong learner. Um, I am able to connect that lifelong learning to what I believe is um, the wider world of social justice. And then there's my Jewish faith, which allows me to uh, orient my work in saying, um, as our Talmud does, our our work that 
Um, you're not uh, obligated to finish any work you do, but you are not um, allowed to abandon it either. So mm. what I say that makes me, me uniquely me is um, a, a dream to change the world uh, now in the gender division of labor, but always um, looking at the world through a lens of, um, I may not be able to finish this work, but I'm definitely not going to abandon it. And you have been doing so much work in that and it's meaningful. And, and speaking from even my clinical perspective, that one of the ongoing challenges I see in something that is so important is how women show up in their relationships, which ultimately impact them, how they feel in the world, how they feel with themselves and in their life, their workplace. And your book, Fair Play, has been such a key piece in that. And I must say, there were moments in there when I was reading your book, I thought, yes, okay, this is that missing piece of what we need to know in terms of making shifts in our relationships. Oh my God, well, can I just say thank you for saying that? I'll just say thank you for saying that from somebody who, again, I really respect. And I want to just acknowledge how important it was for me as someone who comes out of an orientation of mediation through a legal lens mm -hmm. and also working with clients, my day job is, or my you know decade long work has been around um, being a lawyer for families that look like the HBO show Succession. <laughs> and, um, and everyone should feel bad for me because uh, there's a lot of stories I could tell about that work. But really what, what my lens is, right, is, is making sure that organizations don't lose accountability and trust that organizations like family businesses and foundations um, allow for different voices for family structures to make the most complex organizational and financial decisions without blowing up their family relationships. And mm. so it's a very different orientation, obviously, than um, mental health. And so it was really important to me along the way. And that's why I have so many um, psychotherapists and also clinical psychologists um, helping me and weighing in, in in the manuscript because my, mm -hmm. my goal is never to do harm, mm -hmm. right? It's always to um, build and amplify and to say, I really want to nod as a behavioral design tool to how important deeper work is that, you know, you psychotherapists, mental health providers provide, but that it's going to um, be another tool in your toolbox. Yes, absolutely. And, and that's, that's exactly what this is, that there are so many tools within this piece. And I'm going to, I'm going to pull some of them out from you today, but Yay. I, I want to start just from this place of what you're aha moment was. Because I think as, as women and mothers, so many of us have this story that we experience, uh, I don't want to say collapse, but like the weight, the weight of all of it that is suddenly on us. What was that for you? What was your moment of, wow, this is too much. This is a mental load. It's funny, Tracy, you say that because now I call myself, I have a post-it here that says I'm the ghost of Christmas future, right? That that is that is how I also orient my work. That if I could normalize and tell my story to one other person that may be feeling the same way, it felt like a success to me. And um I definitely one thousand percent did not set out to be an expert on the gender division of labor. That is not, it was not an aspect. Aspiring goal for me. Um, I didn't think that 
we um, maybe even needed this anymore. I was not oriented in gender studies at all. I am economist by training. Um, all of my work at Harvard was in negotiations and in law and economics and also race relations too. Um, but it was not in the gendered division of labor world at all. But for me, I think what they now say, right, that all research is me-search. And so it was a very deeply personal um, reckoning, a reckoning, that's what I'll call it now, mm. um, that, that presented so small. And that's why the home is so dangerous because mm -hmm. a day that I thought that I was fighting over being the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs, how could I have known that that day was actually wrapped up in 100, 200, 300 years um, of building societies on the backs of the unpaid labor of women and the undervalued labor of women of color? I had yeah. none of that. Um, and that's what took me nine years. And so what I like to say is thank you for giving us the space here to do a 101. Uh, a lot of what we're saying is unpacking something that took me nine years to learn. And so I want to give everybody the space to take whatever they can take away or to say, this is too much for me, or um, I need to take this slower. But this in the 101 for me was um, a breakdown. The 101 started as, as a breakdown and trying to understand what happened to me on the day that I write about in Fair Play when Seth, my husband, sent me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And you know, and sometimes in those small days, right, they can be life-changing and only in retrospect can you sort of see how hard moments can actually be really regenerative moments. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, um, which I don't get to really unpack in fair play as much is we can just picture the scene, right? I'm getting a text from Seth that says, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. I'm already texting and driving because I'm in my car. I have a breast pump and a diaper bag on the passenger seat of my car. I have a gift for gifts for a newborn baby to return in the backseat of my car because I just had had Ben, my second son. I'm in the car because I'm racing to get my older son at his toddler transition program because in America, you know, we value childcare so much, right? Those programs are so expensive and they last like three minutes. I had a client contract in my lap, Tracy, because I was uh, forced out of the corporate workforce. I used to say I left. Now I say forced out because mm. language matters. I had a pen in between my legs. I will distinctly remember this. I was, I'm still very analog. So I was marking up this contract. It was a grant agreement for one of my clients giving away, you know, extensive amount of money to whatever organization it was at the time. I'm marking this contract up because I'd started my own firm, my own law firm. Uh, and so I call that the case of the 1099. And Every single time I would hit the brakes on the way to get Zach to school that day, this pen was sort of stabbing me in the vagina. You know, so I was, it was just like stab, stab, stab. And then I'd pull it out to try to mark up the contract and put it back in my vagina. And it was this, this, this chaotic swirling of not being present at all in any of these things that were happening to me. And then to get this at the time, which felt like such a personal attack, like a punch in the face for my husband, that was bizarre. It was passive aggressive. It was in my mind, the last straw. And what ended up happening to me was I pulled over in LA. That's a very big deal because <laughs> I'm from New York, but we don't pull over lightly. We take traffic seriously here for me to be late, Tracy, to pick up my son, Zach, to try to compose myself was meant that the, the gravitas of what was happening to me got me to the point of a breakdown. And as I sat there crying, I mean, I think the real thing I was thinking was like how cliche, right? That my marriage is going to end 
over being the fulfiller of my husband's smoothie needs. Like in my mind, my marriage was going to end by my like dramatic affair with an NFL player or something <laughs> or fun. But really what I was thinking was, wow, I really don't have the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have. And uh, more importantly, how would this dynamic come now sort of 10 years into our marriage um, where I am the default or as I call in fair play, the she fault for literally every single household task, a domestic childcare task for my family. Support for today's episode comes from Cozy Earth. You know I am all about caring for ourselves, especially in these busy years with our young kids. We are pulled in so many directions, but I think it's so important for us to find ways to nurture ourselves that require no additional time from us. I should probably let you in on one of my favorite things to do to look after me, and that is to get a good night's sleep on amazing sheets. I am beyond thrilled to bring you Cozy Earth's luxurious bedding products with an exclusive Mother's Day offer just for my listeners. We've got a code. It's SHRINK, S-H-R-I-N-K, for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. Now, I didn't believe it until I tried them, but I firmly stand by my sleep improving with the temperature regulating technology, which adapts to your body's needs. For the past year, I have not slept on any other brand of sheets. Cozy Earth uses the very best fabrics, materials, and wares, offering superior softness for you to sink into at the end of those long days. I look forward to getting into bed, and we've been loving the sheets for over a year and their sleepwear is so unbelievably soft and it's made with such great quality. But the best part is that if you're worried about commitment, enjoy a 100 night sleep trial and a 10 year warranty on all of your purchases. Head over to CozyEarth.com and use promo code SHRINK for an exclusive 35% off and give the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth. Support for today's episode comes from ZocDoc. We all know there are things in life we have to compromise on, like the right way to load a dishwasher or whether those socks are going to stay on the floor for a week. Okay, in all seriousness, but when it comes to your mental health, there is no compromise. So we don't need to go back to that one therapist or one physician who didn't align with what we need just because they're available right now. We don't need to compromise on the care we need for our overall wellness. Instead, this is where ZocDoc comes in. This is a place where you can find and book hundreds of types of doctors, including therapists, psychologists, and psychiatrists. And you can find someone who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your well-being. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare hundreds of types of patient-reviewed in-network doctors, including mental health providers, and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. Go to ZocDoc.com I-N-Y-S and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. If I needed this app, this is one that I would be going to. That's zocdoccom slash I-N-Y-S and get the care that you need today. Support for today's episode comes from Loop Earplugs. 
For so long after having children, I kept wondering why I was easily overwhelmed and felt like an angry mom. The noise from the kids, the dog barking, and the sounds around me from everyday life. But I now understand that I'm not an angry mom and instead my nervous system gets overwhelmed and overstimulated, which is why I've been turning more and more to my loop earplugs to help me stay more regulated and engaged with the family. I'm using loop engage to help dampen the sound around me. And these loop earplugs allow me to still be with every beat and conversation. I still hear Greg. I can still hear the kids. I love that they are so comfortable and they come with eight silicone ear tips to ensure the right fit for you. The best part for me is that I take them everywhere with me. They are proving the test of time and not to mention they're stylish in my ears. Plus, we love the kids versions, which we've been able to take to the movies for our kids. I'm so excited that Loop Earplugs is offering you, my community, a discount so that you too can tackle that overstimulation while still being engaged with the activities and people you love. Visit loopearplugs.com and use my code Loop times Dr. Tracy for 10% off your order. That's L-O-O-P-X-D-R-T-R-A-C-Y for 10% off your order. So one other thing I'll just say is that was not supposed to happen to me because I am the, I'm a parental child, Tracy, as maybe uh, you'd Mm -hmm. say. Um, I was my mother's partner at the home. She's a single mother. I paid her eviction notices for her. I always kept the phone bill running because I always wanted to be, have a Mm -hmm. one, that one phone in our house was important to me as a teenager. Um, and on top of that, I'm a Harvard trained, as I said to you earlier, I'm a Harvard trained mediator. I literally mm-hmm. am trained to use my voice. So I guess I had those privileges um, to recognize early on what it looked like not to have an equal partner mm-hmm. and to have the voice to be able to advocate for myself. And still, Tracy, still I ended up on the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was too much. It was just too much. All of those different things. And you think blueberries are not that much. Smoothie needs are not that much. But then when you put all of them together, the weight of all of it, right? And it's interesting when I think of that kind of that parentified part, it is the caregiver that many people experience growing up. They become that parentified child. Um, But then also that sense of being a woman, being a caregiver. You know, I always, I, I don't like getting stuck in the gender stereotypes of what it means to be male or female. But the reality is that we have to look at that, that women are socialized to be the caregivers, to be the ones to do all the things. A million percent. And I like to say, as my friend Rush Mustajani says, because she's getting some pushback on Marshall Plan for Moms, which I signed on to, which is, why are you just focusing on mothers? And she said, I, yes, I want to aspire to a world where we have better family constructs and a more open definition. And so do I. And of course, centering the changing family is what I do. We'll talk about that later in my advocacy work. But we have to acknowledge the reality that we're in. Uh-huh. And the reality that we're in is that Um, as I like to say, it predictably women hold two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home and family. That's the statistic I was undeniably living that day, Tracy, on the side of the road. Mm -hmm. I didn't even know at the time. Mm -hmm. That is predictable. But what's bothering me is that so many articles in the pandemic were saying inevitably women are shouldering more work. I'm here to tell your listeners it's fucking inevitable. There's nothing inevitable about what has happened to women. Yes. We just have to recognize that this is the way society has not only conditioned us individually, but we have literally structured our societies to be benefiting from 
the wealth transfer from the invisible unpaid work to women, the wealth transfer, as my friend Soraya Chamley calls it, to, to men. And I think we do have to orient that hetero cisgender problem so that we can move into a world where um, we honor and celebrate the changing family structure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, it's such an important piece that we start acknowledging that this is here. And it's a conversation I think many people are not having. And even if I think back to that couple dynamic, that isn't a conversation that we have going into a relationship where, you know, as partners, we don't talk about what roles are we playing? How do we want this to unfold between us? And then then when you add in children, what that looks like is two people just kind of navigating blindly. We haven't talked about it. And you know what's funny about that? The way I look at it is um, <laughs> I had a friend who said, you know, they did uh, pre-cana counseling. I think that's what it's called. And um, they both committed to an egalitarian relationship. Okay. Um, it's great, right? I mean, I, I love, I, not that I don't, I'm not a big fan of, you know, vows that you take on your wedding day, but I'm somebody who is steeped in behavior design. Mm-hmm. And what that means is um, I don't really care about what you're thinking in your mind. And I say this to Seth, you still may have sexist attitudes about um, my time versus your time or who does what, but you do it. You do it. The trash liner goes back in, you pick up the kids from carpool, you make them breakfast. So again, that's where the fair play orientation is. It it works um, to center behaviors and to say that if you have these interesting conversations over who does what, um, that's going to just be a list alone. So what we do and what what my, the, the realization of, and we'll talk about how I got here, but the realization of the, the system around what fair play became, it was a realization that it was a two-step process. It was exactly as you said, Tracy, we have to tell each other stories about ourselves uh-huh. and where we come from to this relationship. Um, and also what we believe. Um, do we believe in the tooth fairy? Do we believe in Elf on the Shelf? Do we believe in Santa Claus? What was your experience growing up? What was your experience with garbage? Who took out the garbage in your house? Mm. Who did the dishes in your home? Right? These are all conversations that um, I find way more important than the vow on your wedding day. And once you have those conversations, then it becomes actually easier to do to get into the what. Because if you start with a list, you're going to end up with a list, which is un- unhelpful. If you think about it as a systems thinking problem to solve, mm. which is ultimately what fair play became, then really it's um, it's a very life changing uh, mindset mindset shift. And for me, it was all about the one question that I asked, because after that day of of collapsing on the side of the road, I did what every you know type A woman would do. I, I started to research the issue, find out that second shift mental load invisible work, there were terms for what I was going through. And so when I got to that term invisible work, I did what every other type A woman has probably done, which is I said, well, let's just make this visible. And I started to make a list. (laughs) And how did it go? (laughs) How did it go with Seth? (laughs) Well, the beauty of the list making was I met people like you, Tracy. I'd say that (laughs) the beauty of the list was to actually connect to community of women around my problem. And that was a nine month process that was very, very powerful for me. And it was before social media was such a thing. Uh Um, Because even if you think about 2011, um, there was no iPads. 
then, no. or, or iPads had just come out in t- 2008, I think. It was a very early stage of what, you know, sort of we were offered. I think there was social media back but then, but I don't remember the, being so. Yeah, yes, so but I remember though that this kind of motherhood community or even the experts on Instagram wasn't really a thing back in 2011. There wasn't that sense of people being more outspoken around this invisible labor or how we can deal with it with just an accessible tile on Instagram that that wasn't available. No, no, I agree with you. And so for me, it was, um, you know, going to the books, going to libraries, uh, reading Arlie Hochschild, Second Shift, um, understanding the history of uh, women's unpaid care, going back to the 1920s and women's Mm -hmm. pensions all the way to Childcare and the Lantham Act. I, I was really looking at this as an anthropologist. And then um, I came across this article from 1986, like I said, that said, you know, women's work will never be visible and valued because it's women's work. And that was from a sociologist named Arlene Kaplan Daniels. So when I decided to write um, a list, I opened up Excel because I love, I really do love spreadsheets. I hate PowerPoints <laughs> and I love spreadsheets. So I opened it up and I started to populate tabs on the bottom. Um, if you know how, you know, Excel works, yes, there's a tab on the bottom, but then you have the sub sub tabs um, in each cell. And so I would start populating things with, okay, let's populate it with a morning routine. Mm-hmm. And then I would do the sub tabs of getting kids dressed. And mm-hmm. then I was like, well, should I put food as part of that? Actually, that's probably a meal that's separate. So that I would put a separate tab for meals. And I was like, well, I don't want to just put all meals, like then you have to think about breakfast and then school lunch. And then you have to think about dinner and weekday dinners actually are very different than week, week weekend meals. Cause a lot of our weekend meals, we would order in or eat out. And there's a different uh, minimum standard of care for those meals. And so it was this very interesting process. I started to ask women like you, I didn't know from different communities, what do you do for your family that may be invisible? Mm-hmm. And from that, um, or take more than two minutes of your time, and that was the beauty. The beauty was getting the responses from other people um, yes. who were reacting to the spreadsheet saying, oh, my God, Eve, you know, yes, of course, taking your kids to the dentist. But what about um, Elf on the Shelf? Right. And I would say, well, um, you just have to don't you know how to use Excel? Just push the, the right button. Get to tab 72. You're going to see mm-hmm. magical beings and under magical beings. If you go down to item 16, you'll find Elf on the Shelf. It was that granular. I had one woman say to me, I appreciate that you put sunscreen under here under medical and healthy living, but you put two minutes. She's like, yeah, maybe two minutes to apply sunscreen to your kids. But what about the 30 minutes for the chase? And I was like, oh, yes. yeah, you just had 30 minutes for the chase. So, it and, was that and what of- about what about the <laughs> research to find the best one or the right one for your child? Or if your child is having a reaction or a rash, you now need to figure out, is it the sunscreen or is it the the, the detergent you're using in the clothes? Or is it, right? It's 100%. All- it is all of that, right? Oh. And so that, that was the impetus for finally getting to the 98 tab um, Excel spreadsheet that ended up with two, more than 2,000 items of invisible work. And that was ultimately called the should I do spreadsheet. Mm-hmm. And that's where this project began, but obviously it didn't end there because what I write about in fair play is that I sent the spreadsheet to Seth um, with all of my communication training. And that's, that's being very sarcastic. I just <laughs> sent it to him 19, this 19 mega, mel, million megabyte spreadsheet um, <laughs> along with a, a, a subject line. Can't wait to discuss. And I think it's really important to recognize that I didn't get the courtesy of a response, not even like words. I just got a monkey emoji that was covering its eyes. And 
I think a lot of us stop there when we get that mm-hmm. response, that first mm-hmm. react, that re- rejection yes. to see no evil. I don't want to see this. I don't want to hear about this. Right. If this is bothering you, just get more help. Mm. And so for me, can, it was can really I stop there for a second? Yes, please. That, that, that is so important. And I hear that from so many of the women I work with, or even when it shows up in the couple session is that we ask once and then we we get rejected and that rejection is hard. And so we think, well, I just won't ask. I'll just keep doing it myself instead of saying, well, actually, sometimes we have to to do it several times. And one of the objections I commonly hear is, well, why do I have to be the one to do it? Why why don't they do this? Why haven't they learned that? I, that's what my mother said to me. She's a um, sort of a left wing communist. She, she yelled at me saying, why are you writing to women? Um, and, and why are you putting it out, you know, on them to have the onus to have these conversations? And what I, what I like to say about that is at some point you have to take agency in your own life. Mm. We, we, we can get to a place and that's obviously why Tracy, you and I, our work is very aligned, right? We are here. You see, when you're seeing couples, you're seeing couples when you need to. Um, I talk to men and women and, and all the different, and also of course, uh, trans families, non-binary people, uh, all different types of family structures. But at the end of the day, because of our conditioning, it does not make sense to uh, to ignore the work we have to do in ourselves. Yeah, of course, men have to do work. They are more than allies. They need to be centered in mm. how they have been conditioned with their privilege. But what I wanted to do was um, was share the core finding of fair play and. I think that's important. Maybe we could just stop because that's an important question about why I talk to women. The core funding of fair play, and we'll get, of course, to the system that that led from the list. But before we even get there, I think what I realized was I can't share the system that I've created. I can't make this a cards against humanity type game. That's really what I wanted because what I realized was that there was so much internalized baggage that I, from women in 17 countries. And the baggage came about um, in how we recognize and view our own time. Hmm. And so what I mean by that, and you've heard me say this, um, is that fair play is based on the fundamental operating belief that all time is created equal. And what that means is the opposite of that is the way we do things today, which is where we guard men's time as if it's finite, um, mm-hmm. as if it's diamonds, and we treat and value women's time as if it's infinite like sand. Mm. We know that because if women enter a male field in the workplace, salaries automatically go down. We know that because pe- people say to me, to me all the time, breastfeeding is free. Again, only if we don't value women's time. Um, and the most depressing and interesting was the way women were devaluing their own time in the home. And so I'll just unpack four quick things. It's the one you said before was a huge one. Um, I got shut down. So in the time it takes to tell him, her, they, what to do, I should just do it myself. But the other three that were so toxic and I call them toxic time messages. Uh So if you've ever said that to yourself, I'm telling you that that's not true. And we'll talk to you about why. But if you've also said to yourself, well, I'm the one who picks up the phone call from the school, because that's what I asked. Why are you the one picking up the phone call from the school nurse? And what I heard was my husband makes more money than me. My job is more flexible. So I'm here to say that's a terrible argument, right? Because that would mean I chose philanthropy. My husband chose private equity. If time is money, I'd be relegated to doing all the invisible work in childcare forever. 
because I make less. So let's throw that out. The next thing I heard was I, my job's more flexible. I'm here to tell you all the studies show if a woman's a doctor, a man's a lawyer, she says her job's more flexible. You switch it, she's the lawyer, he's the doctor, guess what? She says her job's more flexible. Next, I'm wired differently. I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently for care. Again, I'm here to tell you, top neuroscientists went to them. No gender difference in how we multitask. In fact, yes. my favorite off the record quote of my entire journey was the white male privileged neuroscientist who said, Eve, you're trying to unpack the fact that women are not better at wiping asses and doing dishes. That's not good for us men. I, I, it's been really good for me, to, for my wife to take pride in the wiping asses and doing dishes because I got tenure. I have time for golf. I have more leisure time. And obviously he was kidding, but it really hit home. I started to like yeah. almost throw up. And finally, the last one is, oh yeah, we're both colorectal surgeons, Tracy, right? Um, but I can, my husband is better at focusing on one task at a time and I can find the time. So we are not Albert mm. Einstein. We can't fuck, fucking fuck with the space-time continuum. We can't find the time. All it is, is that we have a different expectation in our culture over how women are supposed to use our time. Mm -hmm. And God forbid we mm. use our time in service of ourselves. Right, right. Those expectations right there, eh? The expectation of ourself and other people and how how skewed they are. I, I love that you went to the multitasking one. That was like, yes, okay, right. Because the research shows that men and women are no different around it. And actually multitasking is not effective. Okay, there's something in here that really resonated with me as a clinician, as a mother and a woman, and that was around identity and how women lose their identity when, for, when they have children. That, that's something that you talked about. Can I read a quote from your book? That was one of my, like, like I was just shouting. Okay. So you said, it's on page 169. To be fair, my husband never explicitly said, now that we're married with children, you no longer have my permission to be the fullest expression of yourself, nor did he ever suggest I quit my job. In other words, I received no explicit resistance from him. Rather, it was assumed resistance. I assumed that he wouldn't want me spending time on my career or myself when there were more important things to do, like emptying the diaper pail. In hindsight, I was the source of this assumption and the person who unilaterally decided to validate and act on it. And then just a handful of years after our wedding day, the only I do recited around our house as much from me as from Seth was, I do not recognize the engaged, passionate, interesting version of Eve anymore. Where the hell did she go? It still makes me cry to think about it because... I feel so mad at myself, right? I feel mm -hmm. so mad at myself for not knowing all these things. And then I want to give myself compassion and say, you know, it's, it was such a hard road for me to learn this. And so the back to what makes me, me, the fact that um, I got to have this um, reckoning, as I said earlier, and be able to share that with the world has been really, and that actually Tracy is what my entire second book is about. It's this concept that we talk about in fair play um, as unicorn space. And it's a very, you know, it's a strange title, but why I call it unicorn space is because like this mythical equine that we all seem to like and put on our kids' clothes, it just doesn't fucking exist, right? The space and time for the active pursuits 
that women want to pursue that are unpaid, um, even if they are paid, right? But mm-hmm. we, we call them side hustles, vanity projects, mm. we hobbies. We use yeah. all these really terrible terms to um, devalue and put them last. And I'm here to tell you that the active pursuit of what makes you you. And Tracy, I'm going to say, you know, for me, I'm going to impute it that yours is probably part, at least partly your work, because um, the beauty of how you share with the world in your podcast and on social media is how I found you. Um, but it's important for all of us. And, and that is the most subversive thing, the permission to be unavailable from our roles. Hmm. And so it took me so long to recognize hmm. that a big part of the time choice was this permission to be unavailable from our roles. And so when I start to look at Seth and not center it, like we said earlier on the what, I need you to start making your own smoothies or you know take over the groceries. That came later. And by the way, that's extremely important. I'm not saying that's not important. That's the core of fair play is to get shit off your plate and have somebody own the cognitive labor, which we'll talk about. But when I was able to take the conversation deeper with Seth and say, you know what? I know why we're having all these problems because you don't value my time. Mm-hmm. You believe your time is more valuable and that is okay, Seth, but I'm here to tell you that I'm not, I'm rejecting time is money. Mm-hmm. I'm going to center this and say that we both just get 24 hours in a day and I deserve from someone who loves me as much time choice over my days you have. And so when you have four hours after our kids go to bed to completely clear your mind, to watch sports center, check your PowerPoint deck and work out. Whereas I'm doing things in service of our household till the minute my head hits the pillow at midnight. Mm-hmm. That's fundamentally unfair. It's not going to be the relationship that you and I either want to be in. It's going to lead to a ton of resentment and to be a terrible gray version of the person that you married. And then when we were able to get that deep and for Seth to say, well, I really don't want you to feel that I devalue your life and your time. Um, We were able to go deeper into how we were going to fix things. Uh Yeah, it's, it, it just resonates. I I mean, I, I know that experience, like I, I related so much to how you talked about this and of course, acknowledging my privilege and what I get to do in my profession and how fortunate I am for that. But that feeling of who am I? I have spit up on my shirt. I'm can't make a decision around dinner and I'm here with the baby and you're out golfing and at work or cutting the grass and I'm stuck inside with the baby. And who am I? what happened to me? And this just is not fair. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's not fair. It's, it's not, fair. not fair. And I think, you know, that's, that's obviously why the, the book is called fair play. And I think people can have different definitions of fairness, but I also think mm-hmm. it's important to recognize. And I talk a lot about this, that we have to just all start where we are now. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think the reason why so many um, past efforts to get to more fairness I believe it failed as I sort of watched these books come in and out of, of um, favor, especially the ones in the 90s, was this very bizarre notion um, of what 50-50 meant. And so in the 90s, there was this idea of equally shared parenting, which I find super bizarre. It's the exact opposite of fair play. Fair play is a notion about 
Um, 50-50 is the wrong equation. You know, we want to focus on ownership and fairness. And so we'll talk about how I got to that. But when you are um, in an equally shared parenting 50-50 dynamic, it is all scorekeeping all the time. So what it used to be was I take out the trash one day, you have to take out the trash the next day. Mm. You make $50,000 a year. I have to make $50,000 a year. Um, you, and it wasn't accounting for seasons. It wasn't accounting for customization for each family structure. Right. And so I think that's why a lot of, or at least what I heard in my data, why a lot of women in the generation above us sort of gave up on this mm. notion of 50-50 was it felt so... Um, daunting when they couldn't do it. And then they had a lot of shame around the fact that they were married. And then the shame got built in where even to the today, Tracy, when people are still interviewing me and I have thousands of data points now from couples, but women still say, oh, Eve, well, yeah, yes, he doesn't do anything in the home. And yes, I'm burning out, but like, he's a great dad and I love him. And all this shame around being able to admit to me that their life wasn't fair. So what I'm here to say is that it's going to be fundamentally unfair. It has nothing to do with you. It is a societal problem. Private uh -huh. lives are public issues. Uh -huh. but the way we can fix it is, yes, we're going to do systemic change, but we can also work on taking agency in our own lives. Uh -huh. We can do both and. It's not an either or. And so that's what I'm here to say, right, is that each of us starts where we are now and we can make those changes so that life at least feels more fair. And that's a big difference. It's a big difference to say it doesn't have to be perfect. doesn't have to be 50-50. I don't have to have it all figured out. To actually say, you know what? I may have to come back to the table 100 times because communication is a practice. Mm -hmm. And practice makes progress. But it's not going to be this one and done magical fix. It's just never going to It's never going to be that way. That's not how human beings work. No, of course not. It's that trial and error and that constant growth and reaching growth edges, particularly when you bring in two people. I don't know if you've seen me do my hands on Instagram. It's one of my favorite things to do to really identify that we are two separate selves. You know, if we think of two separate pieces and inside of each person, there's our own thoughts, feelings, opinions, desires, wishes, and values. And our job is to be autonomous, right? Not independent in the sense that we avoid more of the avoiding attachment and we're not going to be close to our partners, but in the sense that I can be independent and I can be interdependent and come together. But then what I see happening is that then we become emotionally fused, or sometimes we use the word codependent. I don't tend to use that one as much, but it like we're on top of each other where we lose that separation and how healthy it is to be able to say to our partners, my time is important. And I see that you're upset about that. And mm -hmm. I get that. And, and my time is important. important. Well, because you're, Tracy, again, why I love your work is because to me, that's, that's the definition of a true boundary mm -hmm. is the lack of merger, right? Yes. It's, the, it's the rejection of this intensive parenting that to be right. a good parent or a good partner, you always have to be in that other person's purview in their space up all in their business. Right. Mm -hmm. And And it's, it's so beautiful when I see you do that because it's like you said, we're not talking about saying, I don't need your help, which got us into these situations in the first place. It's just saying, I'm protecting my boundary. And if you can say that I'm protecting my boundary, my time is diamonds. I don't yeah. care what you think, Seth. Sundays, um, I don't care what you think about my time, but, but I do care about what you think about your behavior. So what ended <laughs> up happening for us was... Seth could have thought fair play was a complete waste of time. And he probably did, right? It was an, a complete unpaid project. He, you know, he's like, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, yes, you are taking the kids all day Sunday and I'll have them all day Saturday. 
And I'm doing that because Sundays I want to write, right? And so for us to get to that place where he understood the value in that, Uh that doesn't happen overnight. And I think Uh that's what I want people to understand, that for me to get from the place where Seth and I talked about how he was devaluing my own time to the place where we got to a sense of, of, of him being an equal partner and not a helper were uh-huh. very much baby steps that stacked on and on and, you know, sort of over and over each other. And so that's all I wanted to, um, that's, that's what I want to orient here is that in all relationships, and this is why, of course, again, I love your work is that, you know, the idea that everybody has to be knowing your stories, um, that somehow the fact that we spend so much more time together equates to that person knowing or being able to read our mind is what I think causes a lot of these issues. We don't Mm -hmm. communicate as a practice. We do come to the table once and then shy away. And that I think is to me the biggest hurdle to people, um, you know, sort of adopting more fairness in the home, however that looks. Yes, absolutely. We don't learn how to communicate. We struggle with it. Okay, tell me about fair play. I, I know what it is. Tell the listeners what it is. And I want to make sure we emphasize the C, P, and E and what parts lead to the deepest resentment because resentment is showing up huge in relationships right now. It is such a big piece, particularly with the pandemic. What a terrible emotion, right? When you think about it, how terrible resentment feels. Um, It's almost, I always say to my kids, resentment to me is the adult version of disappointment, you know, because they're always saying I'm disappointed. This was canceled. And I'm like, I hate the feeling disappointment. And I even hate resentment more because it's it's the person who disappointed (laughs) you and then you end up resenting them. So it's like the the terrible combo for me is disappointment plus um, sadness, which I think equals resentment. And yes. I lived there for a really long time with, with Seth. And um, so where did, where did fair place? So, so let's, let's, we'll, we'll go cut to the end of that spreadsheet moment of my life where I realized that a list alone was not going to work, Tracy. Um, I had a, a choice, a choice that you so beautifully wrote about, or you read back to me about my identity. My choice was to continue down that path of losing myself that I write about. Um, the vibrant, engaged version of the self I wanted to be um, and resign myself with resentment to doing it all. Or I could get my ass in gear and become my own client. And that's ultimately what I chose. I, I said to myself, if this was a family where I was hired to come into an organization that had lost accountability and trust, mm-hmm. that to me is the exact same thing that's happening in my household now. So it just, it was two questions. Question one was, what would happen if we treated our home as our most important organization? I knew Tracy it would look different than the way the world looked today. Uh-huh. We wouldn't be deciding who's taking the dog out right when it's about to take a piss on the rug. I know we wouldn't be deciding who's setting the table right when we're already hangry and cranky. Uh-huh. I knew that there would be um, like in the workplace more customized defaults, understanding of who is holding projects. Uh Apple Apple coined the directly responsible individual, the DRI. There would be more context, not a control. Uh There would be more psychological safety. And hence, there would be more intrinsic motivation to do things. And that's all I wanted Seth to do. I said, I want you to be intrinsically motivated to do these things the way I am, whether it's taking the garbage bag out, getting our kids to their extracurricular activities. So what I recognized was, 
Intrinsic motivation comes from asking that question. How do we treat our home as the most important organization? And then the natural follow-up question, which I asked in 17 countries, was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? I wanted to really understand how tasks were being managed in that organization. And that question, Tracy, became the most important question of my life, of this whole mm. project. I've been asking it now for a, a decade, <laughs> yeah, since 2011, and so 10 years. Um, and it was always the same, always in 17 countries, even the Nordic countries, surprise that supposedly do it better than us. This was still, still the issue in the hetero cisgender relationships. And we yeah. can unpack how it looked differently in the LGBTQIA world, but let's start with the hetero cisgender because that's where the problem is, as we said. What I would hear, and this was again across um, socioeconomic status, ac across ethnicities, I would hear something like if this person was partnered, oh, mu French's yellow mustard is in my refrigerator because my second son, Johnny, won't eat his protein without it. Otherwise he chokes on his protein. He needs it to be dipped and gouged in mustard. Okay, so I knew that. That's the conception. That's where you sort of are noticing that something needs to be done. Happens in the workplace a lot. Okay, guys, we have to, you know, we, okay, folks, we have to tackle this issue. It's come up. That's the conception phase. Then I started to hear, oh, I get stakeholder buy-in. Well, I didn't hear it like that, but I would hear, <laughs> I survey my family for what they need. I, I put it on a grocery list, um, get all the stakeholder buy-in from the people in my life. And then I monitor the mustard for when it's running low. And so I'd write that down and say, I know that, that's planning. And then I would hear, oh yeah. And then I send my husband to the store with the list and he brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. He even, you know, I asked for French's yellow. So don't tell me to, to trust him with my living will. Like that's your message because um, how could I trust him with my living will? He can't even bring home the right type of mustard. That was it. The end of the conversation, nobody wanted to try to change things because it, the relationship, the organization had lost accountability mm. and trust. Mm -hmm. And so once I recognized that it was very similar to the systems I was designing for in the workplace, I recognized that you can design just like I've been doing for other family structures. And yes, I do them with more complicated bylaws and I do it with more, you know, with lots of resources. And I do that with uh, a lot, a big legal lens on me. But what I recognize is some of those principles of positive organizational scholarship, the idea about intrinsic motivation and this idea that um, a whole task handles the conception and planning, not just the execution. I started to recognize that there can be transformative change if we move from a helper mindset to an execution mindset to a ownership mindset. Mm -hmm. And that's all fair play is. It's saying that when you, when you hold a task, whether it's watching your child for an hour or whether it's thank you notes forever, because that's what you want to hold forever, that you do it with conception, planning, and execution. Right. And especially, Tracy, what you said before about uh, the merger is never done that way. So what I was seeing was, oh, well, we both do thank you notes. I get the stamps. He licks the envelope. I write one. He writes the other. It was so chaotic, so opposite of any sort of efficiency. Whereas when I say you have thank you notes for Zach's birthday party. It's out of my brain. I don't have to think about it. It's done right. from who knowing who to thank yes. all the way to the stamps on that note and going out. By the way, I'm going to hear, just here to tell you, we actually don't do thank you notes. I think you should burn that, <laughs> that, that card. Um, so we don't actually do that, but that's just an example of but, how. 
but let's let's say that is on the deck though and what what's challenging i know is that sometimes those expectations show up or the way we do things are the right way and so then we start to get into that critical place of oh you bought those cards oh well don't forget to send it to so and so oh well did you write this did you do this and so then we're still holding all of the other parts of that task instead of completely. So there, you'd be very proud of me. There are things <laughs> that are off mine. And, and I did this even before reading Fair Play and knowing about this conceptualizing and planning and partly because I thought I can't hold all of these okay. balls in the air. And, and, and opening our clinic in 2019 and me practicing here, my partner and I run the clinic together. You know, I'm the face in the front, but he's the guy in the background. But I had said to him, like, I can't do all of this anymore, especially when my second was born. And I gave him the daycare. You know, he texts and does everything about daycare. School, I don't even open a school email. I still get it. I just click delete and choose intentionally. And every once in a while, I feel that urge to like, click on the email. What's (laughs) going on? No, I'm not going to delete. And I trust that my partner has got it. I trust that he's on this and that we're a team. And if there's anything I need to know or be in a certain place that we're going to figure that out. But I think what we want, I want to make sure we mention here is this idea of minimum standard of care, because When I read this part of the, or I told actually my partner about this in the book, I said, well, what do you think about last day of camp and the color of the t-shirt? Oh, well, it's, his response was, it's just the t-shirt color. It's just a t-shirt. I said, okay, well, now let's throw in that piece around identity. And our little guy goes to camp, you know, using the example you wrote about in the book. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. they're not like their other kids. And our job when we're at this age is to fit in with our peers and learn to build confidence and be confident and, you know, build that sense of self, but you didn't do the t-shirt. How do you view the t-shirt now? Oh, okay. Now I see that the t-shirt is part of that minimum standard of care. Exactly. That is it. And I'm almost like tearing up hearing you. I know I'm seeing you. (laughs) Well, because it's so powerful. You know, these things sound so small. We're talking about a a camp t-shirt, but this is everything. The home presents small, Tracy, but it is, these are the patterns that lead us to having no women in power. Um, These are the ones, these are the the situations where we have extreme wealth gaps and and motherhood penalties and sexism because we, we don't trust in uh, saying and investing in these conversations. We we end up saying in the time it takes me to tell him or her what or they what to do, I should end up doing it myself. They can never learn. I'm going to treat my time as infinite. And then we burn out. We get thrown out of the workplace. We um, think of this as a personal failing as opposed to a public issue. So why the minimum standard of care, what you just said is so important. Is it because it's the key to unlocking your unencumbered mind. Again, we're addressing systems issues in America, especially because it sucks to be um, a woman in America, Uh especially a mother in America. America hates mothers. But what you can do with your partner is you can, like we said, take that agency. So part of it is saying, what stories have I told to my partner and what stories do they not know about me? So one of the weird questions I would ask couples is, does your partner know um, how the tooth fairy arrived or whether it arrived at your home when you were a kid? Mm. And 
so many people were very confused by that question. I said, no, no, I want to know, does your partner know about your tooth fairy? Did you have a tooth fairy? Did your parents put a dollar under the pillow? No, it was not a story that people were telling each other. You, you've just hit something so fundamental in our relationship of why I make such a big deal about some of these things and hold it so important that I remember losing one of my first teeth and it was the year that the Blue Jays were in the World Series and my mom was a big baseball fan. And so the tooth fairy didn't come. The first night I was devastated. The second night crushed <laughs> because of the Blue Jays. And I understand that now, but wow. in, in our relationship, I can see why I'm always like, we can't forget this. We have to do this. Don't miss this. And so I love that example of how, how did the tooth fairy show up in your family? Yes. It, it was so fascinating because also I actually feel closer to you, Tracy, that I know that story about you. Um, and I think that that's, that's, so what, what ended up happening with Seth, Seth and me, we started with uh, garbage and extracurricular sports. And actually, ironically, the CPE was the easiest part for Seth to understand because he was already doing it in the workplace. Mm -hmm. He understands that we, I wouldn't go, his employee wouldn't come to him and say, Hey, Seth, what should I be doing today? I'll just wait here until you tell me what to do. So when he realized that that's sort of how he was acting in the home, he said, okay, that, that sucks. Like, of course I want, you know, mm. conception and planning, but you also have to step the, back the fuck off me when I do it. And I said, well, how can I back the fuck off you if you're not going to do it well, right? So then you can end up in that cycle of hell. Mm -hmm. So how do you break out of it? Well, you break out of it by telling stories. So for Seth and me, what I, and this is also something interesting I was noticing actually, and this is years ago of the, the years of beta testing, um, couples where I would check in with them and say, how's it going? How's it not going? And what I found was that there was a difference in my interviews between the couples who had skipped the first step of fair play, which is where I ask you to tell these stories to each other and those mm. who went straight to just the tasks. And that's why I don't believe in productivity apps as the only solution, right? Because mm -hmm. if you if you skip the step of the buy-in, then you're not going to get to a place of being able to hand over a task with full ownership. So the minimum standard of care became this idea that, okay, Seth, let's, let's, let's take a vow around garbage. Let's talk about what garbage means. Um, and so for me to even say to Seth, I need the garbage liner to get back in. And I want him to actually look at the pails outside the kitchen, like the, you know, the pail that's in the overflowing bathroom of our kids where they just like blow their nose a hundred times and have like snotty tissues in there. How did I even get there? Well, you don't get there by just saying, I need you to empty every freaking trash bin in our house and put the garbage liner back in. Yes. A lot of us do talk like that, but what was more effective was to say to Seth, look, thank you for understanding the minimum standard of, uh, of understanding the CPE, right? That the conception planning and execution would mean that the bins go out I don't have to know um, about the where the trash bags are, that you're handling the uh -huh. whole ownership of garbage. But Seth was saying, you're still stalking me, Eve. You stand behind me. You stare at me, whether the trash is going to go out. So there was a missing step. The missing step that now was brought into fair play because we saw it was helping with other couples too, was to take a step back to say, okay, time out. I need us to sit down and I want to just invest five minutes into why my, my story is about garbage. And what I was able to say to Seth was I didn't have a garbage can growing up. 
you probably don't know that about me, but my mother had a bag on a knob, the takeout bag. It would sit on a knob. It would spill out inevitably all over the floor. It was sticky. It was gross. And guess what? Every time I see a overflowing trash bag, it reminds me of when I would go into the kitchen to bring my disabled brother water because I have an autistic brother misdiagnosed for years and years, but my mother also worked late. She worked seven to nine, three days a week to get tenure. They gave her the shitty night Uh classes. And so I put my disabled brother to sleep at night. When I would turn on the light in my kitchen, there'd be cockroaches and water bugs that would scatter everywhere. Um, And that's what happens to me when I see an overflowing trash bin. Your nervous system sends you right back to that moment. Or or later, that my brother would have been seven at the time. I'm 10 again. I'm a parental child again. I'm literally in that that small room, that kitchen with that, 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 the, you know, with the, the water bugs. And so Seth was then able to say to me, Tracy, well, I don't give a shit about garbage. I had a housekeeper growing up. Um, I slept on Domino's pizza boxes in my fraternity. So what happens when you're so divergent over something that has to get done all day? Do you take it back and say, well, I care. So I'm letting you off the hook? No, because then you end up in this cycle of invisible work. Yes. What we did was say, what Seth was able to say was, okay, I care that you care. I'm still willing to own, have the ownership mindset over garbage. But our minimum standard of care is that garbage is going to go out once a day. I agree to you it's important for you. It will go out once a day. Uh But but you're not going to tell me when it goes out. You're not going to, as long as there's stuff that going over the bin and the trash liners back in, I never want to hear about garbage ever again. And it was literally the miracle of all miracles. It was like, you know, Moses parting the Red Sea. It was the first time in my life where I saw true change, where Seth understood mm-hmm. my story. He started to value taking out the garbage as actually as important as other yes. tasks in his work life, because it was not just garbage. Like you said, it's not just the tooth fairy. These are... Yeah connections and investments into our relationship. Yeah, these are these are symbols of what it what it meant to grow up, what it was like to be you. These are our stories that make us who we are and and symbolize how we feel important in the world, how we feel seen in the world, how we feel connected, like we matter, right? Like this is this moment where we need this in our relationships and our bonds, where your partner sees you and says, oh, wow, I can only imagine what that must have been like as an 11-year-old growing up like that. I get it now. It's not just about garbage. It symbolizes so much more. So I know we're running out of time, but I wanted to, you kept, you brought up, you said tooth fairy. And so I, I, and we've been talking a lot about the tooth fairy. So I'd love to just tell you one ending story that I think again is really small, (laughs) um, but it's, it was very powerful to me. It was about a couple who um, were making these changes where they did talk about, they both believed in magical beings. They did believe in the tooth fairy. They had both had that experience growing up and they found it a very magical, meaningful experience. Um, they talked about their minimum standard of care that a dollar, you know, $5 under the pillow was enough. You don't have to do, you know, glitter and crazy notes the way people are doing it on, I don't know, Pinterest these days. <laughs> just, just, just that you know, money would get under the pillow. And um, and then, and then what ended up happening was, and this is a hetero cisgender relationship, um, where the husband said to me, okay, Eve, uh, the first time that I was owning, uh, the, the magical beings card, the ownership mindset of, of the tooth fairy, I forgot 
I didn't put the money under the pillow. And so what his wife said to me was so powerful, which was, okay, old dynamic Eve, he would, I would have taken everything back from him. I would have been seething and resentful. Mm-hmm. I would have said to him, you can't do anything in this family. I told you, you were going to fail. Um, and on top of that, he would have blamed me for not reminding him to put the money under the pillow. Post-fair play, sort of new ownership mindset world, he, he took ownership of his mistake and said, I, I mm-hmm. messed up. I messed up. And yes, I understand the importance of that because we both t- discussed it was important to us. I understand that this feels bad to the whole family. And I will own my mistake because that's the beauty of the ownership mindset. You say, I will carry through my mistake. Uh-huh. And so what ended up happening was he emailed toothfairy at gmail.com. This is really freaky, but there he got a response. Somebody actually answered that email. I think he was <laughs> freaked out. And and he had emailed, sorry, you know, the tooth didn't come and he was doing it in front of his kid. He gets a response that says, oh, sorry, you know, I was backlogged. Um, I will come tonight. And so he showed his daughter this correspondence with the tooth fairy and said, guess what? She, you know, she was backlogged with teeth. That's why she didn't come. And when she comes the second night, she doubles the money. And that was it. It was off the table. It was... Mm. It didn't change what she felt about him. It didn't make her take up back all the work and see the I, resentment. It was, I trust you to own your mistake. And that, because we've mm-hmm. talked about how valuable this is, we have buy-in to being the tooth fairy. And he did own the mistake. And the way he owned his mistake was such a beautiful owning to me of it that it's a small story. But to me, that encapsulates everything that I believe can be right mm-hmm. with the world in a fair division of labor. It's just this sense of having respect, right? Respect for self, respect for other. And that when we can, you know, not need to get, it's that sense of like being stuck in our egos where I need to be right or I need to not be wronged in any kind of way or feel any kind of fault, but just having ownership, take responsibility that you and your partner are ultimately in this together. No one's out to find the bad guy. You're, you're neither right or wrong. It's one of my favorite expressions to say to couples, you're neither right or wrong, but how do you move forward balancing both of your worlds and then making this work together? And repair is so great too. When you think about it, right. For, for kids, like how important it is to, when you rupture something to repair it and to just say like, I messed up. And so I think Uh that that repair is the R that I'd love to replace, you know, with resentment that there is ability to repair, but it does require these investments, these daily investments in your relationship that I find are, if you start thinking about your relationship, your communication is a practice, your most important practice. Yes, I'm sure exercise and meditation is still important, but you know, your, your communication practice with your partner, with your kids, that really is probably your most important practice of your life. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that um, because it's been mine too. Um, mm-hmm. I very rarely get to meditate or to exercise, but the, the, the consistent practice I've invested in um, with Seth and my kids is this fact that I'm going to keep communicating. I'm going to keep talking. We're going to check in every day. It's a ritual. It's not always going to be great. Sometimes our check-ins will say, I look at Seth and say, I hate your face. That's why we're checking in. Other days we're, we are actually talking about, you know, the, the school form that he's filling out. Right. Yes. But it becomes the practice where you can come back to the table. Aww. And I think there's a lot of beauty in being, being able to come back to the table. 
I truly appreciate and just feel so privileged to sit with you today and to have you on the podcast and sharing you and your stories and your experience with so many women. I, I know most of my listeners are women, but I also know they send the podcast to their partners and it's just powerful, all of this work that you're doing. So before we go, tell us what you're working on and where we can find you. Well, hopefully I can, we'll come back to talk more about identity and creativity. Yes. What I've been steeped in is the journeys of many um, people who are rediscovering, recreating, finding their unicorn space, recognizing they deserve that permission to be unavailable. So Mm. it's been really beautiful, whether it's crocheting Harry Potter dolls, like this one woman showed me, or talking to the man who discovered the Titanic. It's just been, it's been so beautiful to watch and talk to people who are living them out their active legacy, as I like to say, and, um, and really leading into their unicorn space. And where can we find you? Please uh, join our movement in many different ways. Fair Play Life um, on Instagram. Uh, my own personal handle is Eve Rodsky. Uh, we answer DMs all the time. And then um, we are starting something called Care Force, which is for people who are fed up with um, policies. It's mostly Americans, but it's a global issue. And we are centering women's economic security, unpaid labor, single mothers. But you can find us. We will have more stuff up soon. It's under care-force.org. And I'll put all of that in the show notes. Thank you, Eve, for sitting with me today. Thanks, Tracy. The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not substitute for the care from a licensed mental health care provider. Until next time, have a great week and remember you are right where you need to be. What's up, guys? I'm Gabrielle Stone, host of FML Talk. After being love-bombed, married, and cheated on, trust me, I've got some perspective on love, heartbreak, trauma, and healing. FML Talk has become weekly therapy for my listeners, where I give you a safe space to heal with, of course, a few F-bombs thrown in. Fun girl talk episodes, solo episodes that will guide you on your healing journey, and guests with stories that will leave your jaw on the floor. Grab a cocktail and come hang with me every Wednesday on FML Talk.